again just in case anyone popped in during our prayer just now we are in the gospel of matthew uh, chapter 26 the first 35 verses today and if you're using the, the pew bibles you can find that on page 703 and i've entitled this sermon i will go before you and i have five points from these verses that i want us to really think about the first one is this we see first of all corrupt leaders and god's pure lamb god's lamb and these some of these points show us a lot of different contrasts as i mentioned so far in the gospel of matthew he he shows us a lot of important contrasts but we see corrupted leaders and god's lamb secondly we see a leper and a lady third we see a, a fake disciple named judas fourth uh, the new covenant passover meal and finally fifth god's commitment versus our commitment so let's look at this first point and in the first five verses corrupt leaders and god's lamb Listen to these verses again. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. Before I say anything else or read anything else there, in that first verse, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, the, the all, thi all these things which are being referred to there, more than likely were what we just finished reading in chapters 24 and 25, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, which is the fifth and final discourse of the Gospel of Matthew. And I won't say it again for a while, I don't think, but it might be helpful once more just to remind you that in case you didn't hear it, or in case you forgot it, which is possible, the Gospel of Matthew is framed around five major discourses or five large lessons if you want to call them that the first is what we know as the sermon on the mount matthews 5 through 7 the second is chapter 10 it's it's the first commission in a sense um, where he commissions his apostles the third is in chapter 18 where we have the discourse on the church where jesus starts to teach about the church before the church itself as an institution is really established the fourth one is found in uh, chapter 20. And the fifth one is what we just completed in chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. And so the, the whole of Matthew's gospel is basically structured around these five major discourses. And so when he says these words there, He's saying when Jesus had finished all these sayings, it's most likely not only that he's talking about the Olivet Discourse, but actually that type of teaching. Because what we're going to see as we go from these verses today to the end of this gospel is that no longer will Jesus be having any um, intention or, quite frankly, um, opportunity to do any large public lessons. We're entering what is known now as the, the Passion, where Jesus is traveling directly into the face 
of his own death. And this is, um, again, there's still lessons being taught here even in his short statements, but um, it will be lessons on the way to the cross. He's been telling his disciples also, he mentioned it three times, that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and he will be flogged and he will be mocked. And then eventually the third time he repeats this prediction to them, he says he will be crucified. But he, he, he was speaking about that in a sort of more future, more not so close kind of way. But now notice what he says here in verse 2. As you know, the Passover is two days away. In other words, you're fully aware of this time of year, what we as Jews celebrate, this thing called the Passover, which the Jews to this day still celebrate. It was a symbolic commemoration of the fact that the one true and living God, Yahweh, rescued his people from Egypt and took them out into what we call the Exodus. And as a final act of judgment against the enemies of God, the Passover took place and the death of the firstborn son of every house in that region that did not have the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost had to experience the death of their firstborn son. That was the tipping point for Pharaoh when he finally let God's people go. And one more word on that. We must always remember when we talk about the fulfillment of that in Christ. When we talk about salvation, we learn from the Passover, the first one, that the purpose of letting God's people go was not to let us go to do whatever we would wish to do with our lives. But what did he say to Pharaoh over and over? God says to let my people go that they may worship me. As Elder Hunt made clear, and you've heard some of us repeat before, Scripture commands us to come together for the purpose of worshiping God on moments and days like this, because a greater exodus that we are studying now is about to take place and has taken place, and Christ is worthy of our few hours on a Sunday morning to gather to worship Him in spirit and truth. And I don't think it's just some of our hearts alone that are grieved. When we drive across places like the Edbush Field and see the parking lot overflowing with cars, some of which have no thought in their mind of this important thing for which we were made to worship God. And that's not a judgment statement there. It's just an observation. And as we'll see in this passage, our lives are directed by the intentions of our hearts. May we always keep that in mind. But the, the, the disciples know, they know something. They know the Passover is in two days. But notice what he adds in again. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. See, now what he's doing is he's attaching his crucifixion to two days from now. 
now they aren't just hearing that this thing is going to happen soon, but he's saying in two days from now, you are going to witness my crucifixion, and it is directly attached, comes on the heels of Passover. And we'll see it towards the end when we read about the crucifixion that there were a number of hours of just pure darkness over the face of the land, which was a symbol of God's judgment being poured out on Christ. They will soon witness this. But in the midst of this, we see that the Son of God's intention, the purpose for which He came. Matthew one twenty one makes it clear why He came. You will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. But there's two scenes here. We don't know if they're happening at exactly the same time, but it would appear that way. And Matthew kind of flips the camera, if you will, turns the lens to another scene for us. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. Those words there, sly way, what they do is they give you a little taste of the corruption of the priesthood of the man named Caiaphas. Of course, you could deduce from the fact that, the, that he has a palace that there's probably a little corruption there too in terms of greed. When God ordained the priesthood, well, we don't get that picture in the book of Leviticus or Exodus or Numbers. You can see things like this in modern day religious leaders, especially on certain channels on TV making all sorts of claims that they need to have a Learjet to fly around the world. But anyway, that's another sermon. Caiaphas is a picture for us of a different kind of intention. The Son of God leading His disciples to follow Him to Calvary for the purpose of dying for their sins. Caiaphas and the priests thinking about how to kill Him. And this is one of those passages that when you sort of zoom out and look at these two events, what you see is two things at, at work. The sovereignty of God. It, it required the hands of wicked men to kill the innocent Son of God. It also required the willingness and the faithfulness of the Son of God to walk straight into that group of corrupted leaders and be willing to die. And so, instead of trying to get into disputes and arguments and trying to over-apply a certain truth like the sovereignty of God or the responsibility of men when we come to this passage versus another, the most responsible thing we must do as Christians is recognize that our minds have limitations. Scripture makes it clear that God is absolutely sovereign. And that man is completely responsible for his actions. The sly way is a way of saying underhanded, corrupt, like a conniving intention. But notice again something about people who aren't setting their hearts' intentions toward pleasing God. Notice in verse 5, once again they betray their, their heart of love of man versus God, love of position. 
But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. If they were really people who loved God and cared about Him, they wouldn't be talking about the people. They would probably be thinking, should we investigate this man more? Is this action or these discussions, are they worthy of this time, the Passover? But no, they're concerned about riots. They're concerned about a little unrest. And so they're going to set their agendas to do anything necessary, any means necessary, to avoid social unrest. And we see this in leaders, not just in the church today, but also in the realm of politics. Of course, Solomon made this clear, there's nothing new under the sun. But as I mentioned in a previous uh, sermon, people who truly love God and who are setting their, their hearts and intentions on the things of God, they don't spend their life worrying about what people think about them. It's a good dose of reality there for some of us. We shouldn't care what people think about us ultimately. <laughs> we should think about what God thinks. Secondly, we see something else that's sort of a contrast here between those wicked men and the deceiver who is going to show up in the following verses. We see a leper and a lady. Now immediately, and remember Matthew wrote this gospel with a particular um, mindset towards really evangelizing the Jews. As a Jew who was called by God to not, not to exclude focusing on the Gentiles, but to prioritize using the Old Testament scriptures to show the Jews this really is the Messiah. Matthew also knows that there was this development in the heart of Jews towards lepers and ladies that didn't come from God. God had made it clear in the Old Testament in fact, he had made laws to apply in love for people who had leprosy to be put in a different part of the camp, outside the camp, so to speak, for the good of not spreading that leprosy. But we see Jesus coming into the home of a man known as Simon the leper. And immediately, any Jew who would have heard this gospel read to them, because remember, they didn't have Bibles, they could go to the Christian bookstore and buy like us, right? So they would initially have heard heard these words being read. So just imagine yourself sitting there as a good Jew, listening. He went into the home of a man named Simon the leper. <gasps> what? He went into an outcast home, someone who was unclean, right? And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 7. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume. Now, this would be a, a double shock for the Jews. What's going to happen now? She's coming towards Jesus. Um, so many of the Jews and, and even some of the disciples, as we see in this age, had an unfounded view of women being near Jesus, of women being, even to some degree, involved in aspects of Jesus' ministry. And so, what Matthew is also doing is showing how Jesus comes to us and reaches across some of these unfounded boundaries that we as people can create. And Jesus, not only did He heal lepers, but 
he went to the house of this leper. Interestingly, we don't hear anything about him being healed of his leprosy. But he does go into the home, into the, the realm of perhaps he was healed, perhaps. But he goes into the home of a man who's known as a leper. And so it is the, the clean, spotless lamb of God going into the realm of the unclean. But Matthew is showing this in contrast with men like Caiaphas and Judas. Here you have those who are considered perhaps unclean or, or less worthy being shown honor. It is, it is those who are less considered as honorable or considered less honorable rather like the leper and this lady who are showing acts of faith and love toward God who are actually worshiping by taking part in whatever was going on in that house. It was an act of worship. And you notice what he says when, when she pours out this perfume. And the, the price of this perfume would have equaled something like three or four months pay. Think about that. That's a lot. It's a lot of money. We don't know if, if she was married, if she had a family. We don't know how much else she had. But she took essentially, let's just call it four months pay and poured it out on the head of Christ. And immediately the disciples get upset. And they say, this is a waste. And we're told elsewhere in another, uh, another similar account, where another lady pours out perfume on Jesus' feet and, and wipes it with her hair. And Judas says the same thing. We're actually told in that account that the only reason Judas brought that up was because he carried the money bag and he wanted to get some of those sales probably and so again we see these contrasts with a leper and a lady that Jesus has come for those who might feel like outcasts and he he says something important to his disciples he basically rebukes them he said leave this woman alone you will always have the poor with you but you will always not always have me now, what does that mean? At the end of this gospel, he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. So here he says, you will not always have me. Well, I think this has at least two meanings. Simply put, physically speaking, Jesus will not always be with them. And for those who are disciples, who are true believers, the Holy Spirit will be sent and on the day of Pentecost, and the presence of Christ in a very real way will be experienced by all of his followers. And in that sense, he will be with us always to the very end of the age. But this is happening before the cross, and he is telling them, I'm not only going to be crucified, but I will not always be with you. And what she is doing is coming from the heart of love and worship that this woman possesses and there's something important that you need to see in this act verse 12 she did it to prepare me for burial and then he says i tell you the truth wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world what she has done will also be told in memory of her you see unlike the the, the corrupted leaders she wasn't going there to be thought about 
She wasn't thinking about becoming the lady of the legacy of pouring out perfume. But because her heart is in the right place, because she is humble before God, you see what God is doing here? He's honoring her. First Peter says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God and in his appointed time and in his way, he will lift you up. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so even though there's no salvation or, or additional content attached to the gospel, Jesus is saying that as a part of this gospel message of, of what Matthew is teaching here, Matthew's gospel will always have this woman in it being honored. And he says that she did it to prepare me for burial. And this points back again to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant, where they would prepare the animals' bodies before they were sacrificed. This pouring out of oil down his head of four months' worth of perfume. Imagine how powerful and how pungent that house must have smelled. The strong smells that must have been coming, probably coming out of the windows of that house. And people would have constantly had that stuck in their minds as they thought about that. And again, Jesus knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to be buried. And he knows this is what he wants to do. This is the love of God in Christ. Just shown in this act, symbolized in this act. Thirdly, and frighteningly, we see a fake disciple. Verse 12, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? I counted thirty silver coins. We see here something that is very disturbing. A fake disciple. Now Judas wouldn't have looked all that different from them. Or sounded all that different. In fact, I bet if you gave the twelve disciples. Up to the point where Judas hangs himself. I bet if you gave the twelve disciples. The same sheet of paper to answer all the Sunday school questions about Jesus. That they would have had the same answers. That's something, isn't it? And this shows us that a fake disciple can actually walk closely amongst the people of God, even for three years straight. He left his home too, by the way. He left his place of usual career and recreation and walked with them for three years. I feel the need to say at this point then, let us be careful to examine ourselves. I didn't say examine your neighbor. <laughs> let us examine ourselves to see if we are just in the building or if we are in the faith. You see, we can walk as false disciples for a time, but at the end, if not before, our deception will come to light and will be punished. Furthermore, false disciples need to understand that Jesus is the one who taught us by teaching the Pharisees that those who don't truly receive him, 
but are closest to him, like this man named Judas, will receive a, a greater punishment, a far greater punishment, especially if you want to compare that person to the proverbial man in the jungle that I'm sure we've all heard about. What about the man in the jungle? Well, that's why missions exist. Don't waste time worrying about people who haven't heard about Christ. Examine yourselves and those of us who are this close to the Word of God and to the people of God. We must learn from people, especially like Judas. That a fake disciple is, is the same root issue there. It's the intentions of the heart. Do you notice that Jesus was even there in the upper room with Christ? It is all about the intentions of our hearts this morning. Christ, his people, the enemies of God, our, our lives and our pro they are products of what we intend to do. We'll come back to Judas briefly in this next point. Fourthly, the new covenant Passover meal. In these next verses, we see an example again of God's sovereignty. Do you notice how in, in verses 17 down through 30, Jesus sends his disciples forward. And he says, there's going to be a man in the town. And you say to this man, the master has need of your house. Notice he didn't say a master. He says the master. And in God's sovereignty, this man had heard about Christ. And as far as we know, he's become a believer. Because remember this, to share fellowship with Christ at this point was to exclude yourself from the fellowship of the other leaders of the temple and the majority of the nation of Israel. Remember, they were against Christ. So if this man had come out and said, yes, I'm preparing a place for this man named Jesus of Nazareth, immediately he would have been putting himself on what you could call a dividing line, on the other side of the fence. Because people were either with Christ or against him. And it is still true of today. The majority of the world is against Christ. Jesus said that in Matthew 12. If you're not with me, you're against me. No one has a middle road that they've created. No one is neutral. Again, this calls us to examine ourselves. But we see God's sovereignty in working in this man's life in such a way that he not only is to some degree believing in Christ, but he has already been prepared for such a time as this. And they go to this man and they find him and they prepare this meal. Because they're still under the old covenant. So Jesus does what a faithful Jew does. He goes to prepare to partake in the Passover with his 12 disciples. Including the fake one. And we see in this picture of the, the first what we call the Lord's Supper. The first um, Holy Communion if you want to put it that way. We see in this uh, event something magnificent. Only God has the right, the authority, and the ability to
to change the nature of the symbolic worship, if you want to put it that way. Only God could say, no longer will you do this kind of symbolic act of worship in this way, but you will do it this way from now on. And take thousands of years of a traditional practice and redefine it. And so we see again Christ's authority in the reinterpretation of these symbols. Let me just read these verses at least. We'll start with 24. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. As we'll, we, will, we will look at this in the coming weeks. But Judas is that man he's speaking about. And if you notice when Judas asks, Surely it is not I. Jesus says, Yes, it is you. I want you to think about that. In the midst of this meal, Judas heard Christ tell him, you are the one who's going to betray me. So did the other 11. Now, people get into all points, all, all kinds of, of, of pointless debates about this. Could Judas have done this? Or what if this? And listen. To prove the intention of Judas's heart, Jesus said it as plain as day. And yes, you'll, you'll find translations that are different than this one that say it differently. But ultimately, if you go and look down into the root of those same words, Jesus is saying, you are the one. This means that Judas, humanly speaking, in his own personal responsibility, had more than enough time to repent. But when you look at the end of his life, meaning how Judas's life came to an end, versus the end of Peter's life, you see one weeping bitterly. That is a heart of broken, contrite repentance. And one committing suicide. Because he has no hope. He has no forgiveness of his sin. You say, how can you say that? Well, let me put it more strongly. Judas Iscariot is in his final destiny today he will spend eternity in hell the hell that Jesus has been preaching about you say well how can you say that with such certainty well it would be better for him if he had not been born do you understand what that means it means it would be better to have never even been known as some to not exist than to come into existence and end his life in this way. I don't think it could get any more serious than that. And also, I don't think it could be much clearer than that. But before I seem like I'm on a pedestal, I should be there too. And so should every single one of you who hears my voice. Judas Iscariot ultimately only received the penalty that we all deserve. And that should also move our hearts, both to self-examination and to live lives that are more committed to God for His grace and mercy. But we see in this 
in this meal here, Jesus says these things, and you could read the other four Gospels, and again, there's another debate, well, did Judas leave the room? Well, did Judas leave the room before they took the Lord's Supper? Because that's pretty significant. Well, well, some say he did, some say he didn't. Here's the, here's the thing I want you to, to land on. It's the same thing as every Sunday when churches around the world take the Lord's Supper. Is it not the case that there will be some in the midst of those gatherings, in the midst of those uh, times where we take communion, that some will not be true believers and that they will take the Lord's Supper? And that is, again, why we must continue to examine ourselves. And in any case, it, it appears that he says this to Judas. It is more likely that Judas leaves, but in any case, let's read verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. This is a monumental statement. Again, for thousands of years, that bread represented those lambs in the wilderness. Those lambs in Egypt that caused the Israelites to not experience the death of their firstborn son. And in the hearing of his first disciples, Jesus says, listen, don't think about that anymore. This represents me and something that you're about to see. This represents my body. And it's going to be broken for you. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you the truth, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. In a sense, you could also say that this, um, especially when you consider the final verse here, or the next verse, after they had done this, they sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is almost like a little picture or foreshadow of Christian worship. You have Jesus, His disciples, you have the Lord's Supper, they sing a hymn, and they move out. Sort of a small foreshadowing of that. Let's move on to the final point. Again, as I said, Christ alone has the authority to reinterpret these things. And he does. But then when they get to the Mount of Olives, he says this, verse 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. Now, just based on the passage that we have before us, I read a, a, all the passages that correlate with this too in the other Gospels, but I'll put it to you this way. Based on the passage before us, this seems to be the nature of the events. They enter the upper room. Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him. He tells Judas he's the one. Judas exits the building. They take the Lord's Supper. They sing a hymn. And all the same ones who partook in that worship service leave and go together to the Mount of Olives. But then he says something. All of you will fall away from me. 
or on account of me rather. I want to make a distinction between falling away from him and falling away on account of him. Some people use the term falling away from Christ to define someone who completely departs from the faith. Or others may use it to define someone who departs for a time. And I think that would be a more accurate description of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you're going to turn from following me, from being identified as my disciples on account of me. And they do. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't even talk about their responsibility at this point. He just says, I'm just telling you the the news before it happens. This is the only news reporter who can say, in the town of so-and-so, these events will take place before they happen. Right? And he doesn't get the weather wrong. He says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. This was a prophecy that the prophet Zechariah had made about this very moment that was about to come, which we'll see, God willing, next week. When after Jesus has prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas, the traitor, comes and turns him over. And immediately, that portion of Scripture ends with these words. I'll just read them for you. They all deserted him. In verse 56, they all deserted him and fled. And I'll, I'll look into this next week a bit more, but maybe some of you here feel a bit deserted this morning. Maybe you've ever experienced the, the, the feeling of abandonment or being betrayed. Look to Christ. Look, look here at the one who understands our weaknesses, who knows what it ultimately feels like to walk into the, the, the most amazing valley of the shadow of death, who knows what it feels like to be true and to have good intentions and for their heart to be in the right place and to still be betrayed by those closest to him. They do desert him. But look at this. This is the fifth point here. God's commitment versus ours. You notice what Peter says? He says, no, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Jesus says, Peter, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now this was the same Jesus who not only fed them and, and, sh- and saw to it that they were completely cared for for three years. He walked on water. He completely ceased a storm. He fed 5,000 and then 7,000. He healed the sick and cured the lame and gave sight to the blind. And he's telling them he's going to be crucified. And he's telling them, even though they have been faithful, in truth, 11 of them in truth, he's telling them, you're going to desert me. And Peter, in his common, what is common to all of us, his common self-confidence, says, no, I will never fall away. I will never fall away. 
But Jesus says they will fall away. And they do. And he still loves them to the very end. Look at verse 32 again. I skipped that intentionally. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He knows what they're going to say. He knows what they're going to do. He knows that actions can speak louder than words. He knows the meaning of their words and their actions. But he says, everyone's going to desert me. But here's the good news. After I have risen. See, he knows he's not just going to the cross and to the grave to be buried. But he knows he's going to rise again. And he knows that after he is risen, he says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. That Galilee, again, that was the, the region that the most favored place of his ministry on earth. And what do you see at the end of this gospel? Well, if you turn there quickly, you'll see at the end of Matthew chapter 28, the, the 16th verse. He's, he's been raised up from the grave. The, uh, the angels have, have told the, the two ladies who saw him. First, there you go again. He tells those two ladies to tell the disciples, or rather Christ himself tells the two ladies to, to tell the disciples to, to go and meet him in Galilee. And what do you see in verse 16? Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. He told them before the cross what he was going to do, where he was going to be, and then eventually he tells them before he ascends what they must do. But I want you to see the difference between the true Christian faith and every other religion which is false. Every other religion is false and they do not have a, a Lord, a God who comes down to us, lives amongst us, and goes before us. Hold on to those words today if you don't know what is going to happen in the next few days. Maybe, maybe you're in a more consistent pattern of life or maybe you're in a period of uncertainty. Listen to those words again. I, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you. And this again is, is Jesus speaking like God spoke to his people. The same God who went before the Israelites in the cloud of pillar and in a cloud of fire. The same God who opened up the Red Sea and went before them. This is the God who, in rightful judgment, because of our sin, cast us out of his presence in the Garden of Eden. But this is the same God who has come down to us now. Emmanuel, God with us. That's Matthew 1, verse 23, quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Christ has come down to his people now to bring them back up to him. He has walked with them. He has gone before them. If you could just quantify what you would imagine to be the worst possible outcome of your future. Think about that. You don't have to be afraid to do this. Use your imagination. It will never compare to what our Savior has gone through. And He has gone before us to go through that. 
so that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with all of our weaknesses, who knows our, our needs. Christian, your Savior knows your needs. He knows what you need. He knows what you don't even know that you need. We can spend all the time in the world planning, and we should plan, but we still don't know ultimately all the things that we need. But this is the God who is not only crucified for our sins, paid the penalty, offered us forgiveness, granted it, and lavished us with grace upon grace, but He has ascended, and He is reigning now from the right hand of the Father, and He's coming again. And He never will leave us because He's given us His Holy Spirit. This is our loving Lord Jesus. There is no other that we can come to to find such grace and mercy. And so let us together now look to Him, this One who's gone before us and who will come again. Let's bow before Him in prayer. Father, we, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy in Christ. We thank You that Christ did not come to simply make forgiveness and complete redemption a sort of possibility, but a divine actuality. We thank You that He went before those, those first disciples he went all the way to Calvary. And He bore the punishment of our sins in His body on the tree so that He might bring us back to You. So that we now, who have the Spirit, can cry out, Father. Father in Heaven. And we just praise You for Your love. We praise You for Your commitment to us. Forgive us for the times when we have failed to be truly committed to you, even if our words sounded valiant and like we were committed to you. May our hearts' intentions, may our minds and our hearts align with your will more and more so that we can truly be committed to you. Father, I pray for some listening this morning who might not even know if they're going to make it through the next month. Don't know where the next meal might come from. If that is anyone listening, may we be those who help them. And may we stop grumbling as we are so prone to do like the Israelites did. May we stop grumbling about your ways and your plan and look to your word to see just how amazing your grace and your power and your commitment is to your people. Help us to be a people of confidence in you. Help us to be good co-workers. Whatever job we have, help us to be those type of people that represent Christ, recognizing that we are either with Him or against Him. Help us, no matter the cost, to be faithful to Him in our places of work, in our homes, first of all, 
in our relationships, whether single or married, courting. Help us to be our widows or orphans even. Help us to, to be faithful no matter where we are to Christ. And help us all the more to, to see by faith and to be moved by that faith seeing Christ who is seated at your right hand who reigns now who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And no matter the cost, especially we here today as your church and other local churches that are true to your word, Lord, true to your gospel, no matter the cost, help us to be faithful until the day of Christ's return so that you would be glorified and that we would receive goodness in your glorification. And we thank you again for all these things, and we ask them in his name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to invite the praise team at this time to come back up to the front, and you can stand with me if you will. We'll sing our closing hymn now. From the Trinity hymn, though, it's 598. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah.